Merry Christmas, and we are here to worship the Savior, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to be in the book of John, uh, chapter 8, if you'd like to turn there. John chapter 8. It's uh, 59 verses. We're going to do the whole chapter today, so. <laughs> it's a very long service. Yeah. No, chapter 8. I'm going to summarize uh, the argument that goes on here, uh, but we're going to focus on the end of the chapter as I'm going to see. So, uh, and this will be the longest introduction of any sermon that I've ever done. So uh, just stay with me uh, as we guide ourselves to the main idea. So Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Uh, God, thank you for who you are. Uh, thank you for the names that you have. We think of the name of Christ, Jesus in Greek, Yeshua in Hebrew means the Savior. It means to save. Uh, and indeed, he came to redeem us from our sin. And thank you for the hope that salvation gives us uh, for what is uh, yet to come. And for the joy it is to know you, the living God, and walk with you today. Uh, we adore you and lift you up uh, in a place where we can't even begin to comprehend it with a finite mind. Uh, thank you for what awaits us. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, in 1865, uh, John Wesley Work Jr. wrote, uh, Go Tell It on the Mountain. How many know this old, old song? Yeah, it's a fun one, especially to play on the piano. It's fast, it's vibrant, it's exciting. Um, go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that what? Jesus Christ is born. Uh, that's something to proclaim. Uh, why should you want to go to the proverbial mountaintop and proclaim the birth of a Jewish boy 2,000 odd years ago? Well, the answer is given in the next two stanzas. Uh, stanza 2, or verse 2, if you don't, get, you're not into music. Stanza 2 is this. The shepherds feared and trembled when lo, above the earth rang out the angel chorus that hailed our Savior's birth. Jesus, the Savior. Stanza 3 says, uh, why should you proclaim uh, the birth of Jesus? Down in a lowly manger, our humble Christ was born and God sent us salvation that blessed Christmas morn. Uh, who was born? Uh, Yeshua, the Messiah, the Messiah, the anointed one, prophesied in the Old Testament. Uh, that is something to proclaim to people that don't know what Christmas season is, is all about. Uh, when is the last time you went to the proverbial mountaintop and shared with somebody uh, what it's all about? Uh, what Christmas is all about. And you don't just have to do it at Christmas. Yeah, I just share my faith at Christmas. No, it should be an all-year thing. Uh, in fact, the last words of Christ before he ascended into heaven were to share that story of his great salvation. Uh, long before John Work uh, wrote his, uh, his Christmas carol, uh, there was another John uh, that lived in the time of Christ, the beloved disciple of Christ, according to John 13, verse 23. Uh, he gave us many viable reasons to uh, stand on mountaintops and proclaim the birth of Christ. Uh, for John, those reasons uh, were uh, embedded from what he saw and what he heard when he listened to Jesus the Messiah teach. Uh, and when Jesus the Messiah taught, uh, he proclaimed uh, uh, different titles that associated himself with the God of the Old Testament, with God himself. So he wasn't just a, a man, he was the God-man, as prophesied in uh, Micah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, uh, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 and following. Uh, all prophesied, like in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, that when the Messiah would come, uh, he would be divine in nature. Uh, and so when he came, he proved that, as we've seen in the last few Sundays, through his miraculous activities to verify that because any crazy person could claim they're God. But he verified it with his, his mir miraculous activities. Uh, and then he also said, uh, let me give you the, who I am. Let me explain my identity. And so he chose the name of God from the Old Testament, the I am of Exodus 3.14. Uh, he takes that subject, I am, and he weds it to predicates. 
And he says, let me identify myself. And so for the last two years, we've studied the I am statements of Christ because they're so powerful in, in, in claiming who he is and who he, who he was at the time. So we've seen him as the, the bread of life where he said, I am the bread of life in John 6. Uh, John 8 verse 12, he proclaimed that he was the light of the world. John 10 verses 7 and following, he said, I am the door and it's, it's the only door that leads to eternal life. Uh, in John uh, 15, he says, I am the vine and you're either associated with him as, the, as a vine and you're a branch or you're not. Uh, he says in John 14, 6, which we started this year in our study of the other I am statements, Jesus says to Thomas when Christ wants to know, you know, Thomas wants to know, Lord, how can we follow you to the heavenly abode you talk about in verse 1? And Jesus tells him, Thomas, I, I am the way. I am the way. I'm the only way to heaven. Uh, John 14, 6, he also told Thomas, uh, I am the truth. Not a truth, but the article means definitive truth which means he's the only religious truth of all religious ideas that guide a person into the presence of God. Very narrow, uh, J Jesus said it was. Uh, John 14, 6, he also said, I am the life. Uh, this is life in the here and now. When you become a Christian, you follow Christ, you really know how to live for a change because uh, your sin is forgiven. But that's not primarily what he's talking about because in the context, he's speaking about heaven, going to heaven to prepare a place for his saints and bring them there one day. He's talking about eternal life. And so Jesus uses the article there for good reason, uh, 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 wedded with the concept of the I am from the great God of the Old Testament, the burning bush God. But uh, more than that, he weds his I am concept, uh, that verbiage to all these predicates. And he, in John chapter 8, he adds another one, and it's the last one we'll study in this series. Uh, John chapter 8, uh, he introduces this uh, great concept of who he is at the end of the chapter. But before we get there, we have to understand the, the chapter, the argumentation of the chapter as to why Christ said what he said at the end of this chapter. He's in the temple treasury, uh, in the temple. Uh, he's debating with the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, the people who knew the Torah, who knew the, uh, the, the prophets very well. Uh, and he, they are determined to undermine him. So they bring him a woman who was caught in adultery and they want him to make a decree against her so they can trap him. Uh, and he's smarter than them. And he's going to uh, identify himself to these scribes and Pharisees in debate uh, all throughout this chapter. But all throughout this chapter as he uh, discloses himself, he's doing this to men, religious men, who have determined a priori that he's not the Messiah. The, despite what evidence they see, they will not believe in him no matter what he does. Uh, he's going to disclose himself to these Pharisees and scribes who are going to mock him in the first four verses for not obeying the law uh, in in the law called for the, the death of the adulteress. And what did Jesus do? Well, he drew something in the ground and said to that crowd, you without sin, you throw the first stone at her. What happened? You know the story? Well, they all walked away. And what Jesus did is he exposed to them because if they, if they truly followed the law, they would have brought the man too, not just the woman, because that's what the law in Leviticus 20.10 called for. If you're going to do this, you have to bring the man and the woman. No, they twisted the law. Uh, he disclosed himself to these crafty individuals. Uh, they uh, condemned him for giving himself as testimony to, as to his identity when Jesus is going to come along in John chapter 8 verses 12 to 20 and say, uh, I'm, not an, I'm not the only one who identifies my witness. My father is my witness. That's two witnesses. I follow the Torah. Uh, they are going to mock him and, and, and try to undermine him. Uh, but they did not understand what he had to say uh, when he says in John 8 uh, verses 21 to 23 that he's going to return to heaven where he came from originally. They're looking at him thinking, you're from Bethlehem. Uh, you grew up in Nazareth. Uh, you came from heaven? 
down here on a mission? Yeah, he's crazy. They didn't understand who he was. Uh, they were clueless and arrogant when they asked him in John 8 verse 25, who are you? Who are you? They were blown away as to what he was saying. Uh, it, Jesus still disclosed himself to them. Um, uh, they uh, claimed that they were Jews and not slaves of sin as Jesus uh, said they were in John 8.33. They were really big on the fact that Abraham is our father, therefore ipso facto we're bound for heaven. Jesus says, oh, no, 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 no. It, you don't get into heaven by knowing Abraham or being related to Abraham. You get into heaven by knowing me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. See, Jesus took these men. They were, they were murderous at heart. When you get to uh, John 8 verse 41, um, they, Jesus knew he was beginning to win the argument with them because they're trying to undermine his identity. Uh, and Jesus is uh, not giving them an inch. Uh, and then uh, when you get to verse 41 of chapter 8, they, they slap a pejorative title on him because they can't win the argument to undermine him. That's what godless people do with godly people. They try to undermine them. So you know when the godly person is winning the argument, when they slap a pejorative title on you. What the pejorative title they slapped on Jesus was, well, your mother had you before she was married to your father. You're illegitimate. You're a sinner. Jesus still tried to reach out to these men. Uh, John chapter 8, verse 48, they are going to uh, call him a, a, a half-breed Jew which is a derogatory term. They're going to say, you're demon-possessed in John 8 verse 48. Why? Because they can't win the argument with Jesus. Imagine arguing with Jesus. God himself. Imagine the audacity. Uh, he still disclosed himself all throughout this debate with these men as to who he was. When you get to verse, and I'm getting to my sermon eventually, I told you, hang with me. You still with me? Where is this guy going? I'm going. I always have a reason. When you get to John verse, uh, uh, 8 verse 52, they are really convinced that he's out of his mind and demon-possessed because he says, if you believe in me, I will give you everlasting life. If I told you I can give you everlasting life personally, you would do what? Line up and call me crazy. No, they think he's nuts. He, now he's saying you can have everlasting life. First he said he's coming down from heaven. He's on a mission from God. Now he's saying if you believe in him, this mortal from Bethlehem, uh, he'll give you life everlasting? Um, in verse 53, they are in utter disbelief uh, at who Jesus says he was because in John 8, 53, he claims that he's greater than the deceased Abraham. And they're, they're just out of their minds because Abraham is the progenitor of their entire nation. And so in verse 53, they ask him a question. And it's not a nice question. Who, who do you make yourself out to be? Translated into our vernacular, who do you think you are? Are you kidding us? We're the enlightened ones. Jesus uh, takes these people that are nasty, extremely educated, extremely in the know, and he tells them, you should know who I am based on the, the works that I do and the words that I teach. You should know who I am. He identifies himself. Why? Because he loved even the, the blind unbeliever. And notice how he comes after them in verse 23 in a loving way. Verse 23, he says to them, you, scribes and Pharisees, are from below, I from above. You are of this world. I'm not of this world. I said therefore to you that you will die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. This is definitive. Um, you, have to, you have to read this in Greek. In fact, that's why you take Greek because you see stuff like this and you're like, what he said is so powerful. So we are a church that loves grammar. Why? Because I do. Yeah, you don't have a choice. Yeah. So, 
I love grammar. Uh, not that I started out that way as a kid. I hated grammar. But once I started studying the scriptures in the original language, uh, and you start reading Greek, as after I took six years of it, I'm like, well, this is unbelievable. What did Jesus say here? Well, you notice in your text that he is italicized. You see that? Now, if it's not italicized, your translator took liberty because the word he is not in the original text. So when Jesus tells them, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Leave out the he because it's italicized to make it grammatically correct in English. So what does he call himself in, in John 8, uh, 24? Uh, we have the Greek text uh, for you to analyze for what it's worth. Uh, are you, I'm, still, I'm getting to my sermon eventually. So are you with me? Okay. So what he says here is because he says to them that they will die in their sins. It, this is a conditional clause. If you don't believe ego imi. Ego, first person, uh, personal pronoun, I. Imi, copula, to be, first person. If you do not believe that I am the I am, you'll not ever see heaven. Was he definitive? Who did he just claim to be? The I am of Exodus 3.14. See, there, anybody ever says to me, I almost pulled my hair out. That's where half my hair is gone, I think. Um, <laughs> Jesus never claimed to be God. Really. You obviously have not read what he said. In Greek. <laughs> it's helpful. Because he claims to be the great I am. Uh, we need to go back to Exodus 3.14 and just analyze what, uh, what Moses said back there. So let's go back to Exodus 3.14. God says to Moses, when God says, what's your name? God says, let me give you my name. It's a verb. My name is, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. That's my name. He's the eternal God outside of time and space. Inside of time and space. He's the great God. So what he says in Hebrew, or in Greek, which is translated from the, the Hebrew, is he says, he says to Moses, I am, and then he throws in this uh, article, and this is a, prepos uh, this is a participle, the, the being one, ontolo ontological being one. But he says, ego e me. I am the I am, the one who is in a state of being. I'm the infinite one. I've always existed. God said this to Moses out of the bush. Jesus comes along and tells the scribes and the Pharisees at the, at the treasury, at the temple mount, when they're wanting to know, like, who do you think you are? He said, it's pretty simple. I am the I am. They didn't get it. They didn't connect the dots. I want to give you a couple of usages that they would have totally known uh, from understanding the Torah and from understanding the, the writings of, uh, uh, of the prophets. And I'm, I'm getting to my main point in my sermon. You still with me? Excellent, okay. Uh, let's look at uh, what God said in the Old Testament. Let's go to the, the Torah. De Deuteronomy uh, chapter uh, 32 verse 39. What does God say to Moses? Uh, God says, see now that I alone am he. Uh, and there is no God besides me. Now if you look at this uh, in, in the Greek text, uh, he, sa he says behold here two times that I am egoimi. I am the I am. It's the exact grammatical thing that Jesus said. There should be no doubt in a scholar's mind that knows the scripture as to what he just said. But they still didn't get it. Uh, Isaiah, when you go to the prophets, Isaiah chapter 41 verse 4, notice what God says. Who am I? Well, I'm the one who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, Yahweh, I am the first and I am the last. Who am I? I'm the I am. And the he is italicized because it's not in the original text. Who did Jesus say he was? He said, I'm that God. In fact, when you get to Jesus at the end of the book of Revelation, he calls himself the Alpha, the Omega, the first, the last. Uh, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10, that any scribe in the Old Testament should have known 
Uh, verse 10 says, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I've chosen in order that you may know and believe me and understand that I'm who? I'm he. I'm he. Before me there was no God formed and there is none after me. Uh, what phrase did he use? He used the same terminology. Uh, he used ego imi right here. He says, I am the I am. That's who I am. Uh, Isaiah chapter 43 verse 13. This is really good. You still with me? No lying on Sunday morning. What does he say in Isaiah 43? He says, yes, I am the one who is from where? Eternity. Well, who's that? The ego in me, the I am. In Hebrew, it's anihu. The I am, the I am in Hebrew. I'm, I'm the I am. There is no one who can deliver from my hand. I can act and who can cancel it? Isaiah chapter 48 verse 12 is the one, last one we'll look at. Uh, listen to me, O Jacob, and even Israel, whom I have called. What name does he tell them is his name? I am he. I'm he. In Hebrew, it's ani, who. I am he, with no verb. In, G in Greek, it's I'm the ego, me. And who did Jesus say to the scribes and Pharisees on the Temple Mount that he was? Who are you? He tells them two times in a row, I am the I am. And they didn't get it. You know, sometimes truth, spiritual truth can come into your life and it just bounces off the hardness of your unbelief. I know, because I used to be a non-Christian. And you hear the spiritual truth and it's like, bing, I ain't believing that. That's insanity. Now Jesus said, let me hammer a little more. And so he continues to come after the soul of the person who denies him with the evidence by telling them two times, I'm he. John chapter 8 verse 28. Jesus therefore said to these uh, scribes and Pharisees, uh, you're going to understand who I am. When? Well, when you lift me up, which is a code word for the crucifixion, when you lift up the son of man, that's a code word for Jesus, uh, then you will know that, who am I? I am he. He's italicized. Who's he say he was and is? Well, I'm the, I am of the Old Testament, the burning bush. I'm the eternal God. This is exactly what he says. Did you understand that? I did. Did they understand that? No. Because they had assumed a priori he wasn't the Messiah. Didn't matter what they heard. Don't bother us with the truth and the facts. We don't think he's God. So two times he tells them exactly who he is and they go nuts in, in verses 49 to 52 when he says to them as the I am of, of, of everything I can grant you eternal life. How could he grant eternal life? Because he is the eternally existent one. And then they're going to get really tripped up all over him in John 8 49 to 52 when he claims that well, well he says it in verse 56 Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. How long had Abraham been dead? Well, this was around 30, 31 AD. Abraham, you know, in 2100s BC. Jesus had been dead a while. What's the probability that Jesus, as a 30-year-old Jewish young man, had actually walked and talked with Abraham? If I told you I knew Abraham and walked and talked with him, you would be looking for another church, would you not? He's absolutely insane. He thinks he's, that's what, that was two, that was 2,000, that was 4,000 years ago. See, Jesus says, that was 2,000 years ago, but he knew me and I knew him. So they automatically assumed there's no way that you're, you're, how could, you're not even 50 years old yet. That's their argument. So when Jesus really goes for the, the juggler of their unbelief, he really rams their door of unbelief with what I want to talk about this morning. <laughs> I told you, I, I'm getting there. Well, what, what did he tell them? For a third time, he leaves them no doubt in verse 58. What does he say to them? Jesus said to these unbelieving religious people who knew the Old Testament Torah and prophets better than anybody, who knew what the I am statement meant, 
And he just told it to him twice. They didn't connect the dots. So he said, let me put the cookies on the lower shelf. Verse 58. I don't know if they ate cookies back then, but <coughs> you know what I'm talking about. What did he say to him? Jesus said to them, amen and amen. Or if anything isn't true, this is true. I say to you, religious leaders, before Abraham came to be, who am I? I'm the I am. He said, not only did Abraham know me before he was ever even existent, I was in a state of ontological being because I'm God. Did Jesus ever claim to be God? Let's just get this clear. Did Jesus ever claim to be God? Absolutely he did. He backed that up with miraculous activity, which is a whole other sermon series for some other Christmas. Uh, and he backed it up with a teaching like nobody else could teach. Why? Because it's God teaching you. So here's, here's, my, here's what I want to go with. My, I'm getting to my main idea in my sermon. And I have about 12 minutes to, to do this. How did they respond to the I am disclosing himself to them? How did they respond? Well, when you read the very last part here, uh, you, you read it and you tell me how did, they try, how did they respond to him when he said this? What did they want to do to him? Stone him. Why? The audacity of that. He's 30 years old. That's ridiculous. He's from Bethlehem. He's from Galilee of all places. Nothing good comes from Galilee. Stone him. Why? He has just committed blasphemy. He's just equated himself with God. Stone him. How should they have responded? What did he tell them? Unless you believe in me, you'll, you will die in your sin. What's the flip side of that? Well, the positive side is, if you believe in him as God in the flesh, the Messiah, as prophesied in Micah 5, 1 and 2, that God was coming to be our Savior. When you believe in him as your Savior, well, then you have life. You have forgiveness of sin. He makes you his child. How should they have responded? Instead of facing him, they should have embraced him. You follow me? Instead of facing him, they should have embraced him. Jesus should be worshipped. That's the point. That's the point of the entire chapter, chapter 8. Uh, Jesus should be worshipped. Uh, why? Because he's the, eternal, uh, he's the eternal God who came to earth. I mean, think of the magnitude of this. He left the glory of heaven and came here to redeem sinners who had a free will, who had rejected him in the Garden of Eden. He came anyway out of love for us to knock on our heart's door to say, hey, I'm he. I'm here. Will you follow me into eternity? Why should he be worshipped? Because he's the eternal God. Uh, two points I want to bring up in my sermon, because every sermon has to have points, correct? You're, I know you're kind of worried. I had no points. I have two points. Uh, Jesus should be worshipped as, as the eternal God for two things, two concepts. I limit it to these two. Number one, as the eternal God, Jesus performed uh, familiar divine miracles. Like if he's claiming to be God, then I would want to know as a thinking person, if he claims to be the God from the Old Testament, the eternal one, can he do what he did as I read in the Torah and the prophets? Well, this is a whole sermon in itself. I'll just summarize. Well, the answer is yes. Now we can go to IHOP. Uh, no. <laughs> did he do the works that the Father did, the, that God did, the Trinity did in the Old Testament? Absolutely. Uh, here's a couple of ideas. Uh, number one, the eternal God of the Old Testament is one who controls storms. Remember the story of Jonah? Yeah, next uh, in February when I take our tour group uh, from our church over to Israel, one of the first places we go when we land there before we go to the hotel is we go down to Joppa to the house where you know, all this took place where, you know, God told Jonah, go to the Ninevites the, you know, you know, and w witness of my glory to the wicked Assyrians. 
And, and Jonah's like, I ain't going. I don't like them. They're Gentiles. I don't like them. And they're evil. I'm not going there. You know the story, right? He gets in a boat. He goes out to sea. All of a sudden, there's a huge storm that God causes. They roll the dice. The dice are controlled by God. You know, they draw straws, whatever they were doing. Cast the lots. God controls the lots. The lot comes up on Jonah. He says, yes, I'm the guilty one. I'm running from God. What'd they do with them? <laughs> You're out of here. Threw them over in the Mediterranean in the middle of like 40-foot swells. There just happened to be a very large fish. Not a whale. The word dag in Hebrew means just a big fish. Sovereignly came along like a taxi, like an Uber. Picked him up. <laughs> where, where, to, where to take him? Back the opposite direction where God wanted him to be. Spit him out on the land. And then he's like, I'm going to Nineveh. Right? Who controlled the storm in the book of Jonah? God. Who controlled the fish? God. God's all through the, out the whole thing. See, God controls storms. When you get to Matthew, uh, Mark, or Mark chapter uh, 4, uh, verse 37, we read this. There arose a fierce gale on the Sea of Galilee, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. I've been there deep sea fishing out of San Francisco. Bad. And he himself was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they, he must have been uh, in the Navy. He had his sea legs. They woke him and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? I mean, the ship's going down. Wake up, man. I'm adding to the Bible. Sorry. Um, and being aroused, he rebuked the wind and the sea, and he said three words. Hush. Be still. Shalom. What happened? And the wind died down and became perfectly calm. You could start skiing behind the boat. If you were on the boat and that happened, you'd be looking at Jesus going, he said three words, and the wind and the sea obeyed him. Who is he? Well, the God of the Old Testament controlled the sea, and this must be God, because the sea beckons to his call. The eternal God of the Old Testament is a God also who miraculously, miraculously provides bread. Bread. See, uh, N Numbers 11 verses 7 to 9, when the Israelites needed uh, bread in the wilderness, and I've been out in the Sinai, there's nothing out there. I mean, there's not like bread stores. <laughs> and so when he sent them manna, according to 11, uh, Numbers 11, 7 through 9, for 40 years, every night when the dew would form, bread would fall from heaven, and manna in Hebrew means, what's that? Mana. Because if you found bread all over outside the camp in the morning like clockwork for 40 years, wouldn't you want to say, hey mom, mana, what's that? Well, it was bread from God. He gave bread because he's the God of bread. When you, uh, you, find, you find that when you read Numbers. When you run into Jesus on two separate occasions, uh, he took a, a, well, like a sack lunch from a young boy uh, and he turned it into food for 5,000 people. He did the same thing again uh, and fed 4,000 people, plus their wives and children. So when it says 4,000 to 5,000 people got bread out of this kid's lunch sack and some fish, he kept drawing it out. Why? He's the bread of life. He who created wheat can make bread all day long. See, Jesus did exactly what God of the Old Testament did because he's God. Third thing I'll give to you, the eternal God of the Old Testament is the God who gave and removed leprosy. Uh, Moses, when he wants to know God, are you going to really be with me? He says, hey, I'm going to be with you. How am I going to know God? Well, let me show you my greatness. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 6, the Lord furthermore said to Moses, now put your hand into your bosom. So he put his hand into his bosom and he took it out and behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And then he said, now put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again and he took it out of his bosom and behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. And he said, it shall come about that if they will not believe you, or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the last sign. God says, I'm going to do miraculous things through you, Moses, and your staff, that, that nobody can do unless God was with them. 
And I can, I can send disease and I can take away disease. Let me show you. Matthew chapter 8 verse 2. One day uh, Jesus ran into a leper. It says, Behold, a leper came to him and bowed to him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He stretched out his hand, full of leprosy. Uh, he, Jesus touched this man. And he said, I am willing. Be cleansed. And immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. Why? God had just touched him. See, only God can do that. Why should Jesus be worshipped? He's the eternal God who can do miracles that were familiar with miracles from God of the Old Testament. That's who he is. That's who he is. They hated Christ for three main reasons. Why they wouldn't believe even the miracles. I'll give them to you. Number one, the scribes and Pharisees hated the fact that uh, uh, he dared clear their temple two times. How dare you come into our temple and, and throw out our money changers who are making tons of money off people who come to church. How dare you do that? Uh, they, he did that in the book of John chapter 2 is the first time he did it. Uh, he challenged their teaching and traditions in Matthew 5 to 7. Read it. When he starts his ministry, he says, you've heard from old that what they've taught you, let me tell you truth. They taught you tradition, let me teach you truth. They hated him for that. Uh, number two, uh, they, uh, they, they came at Christ with their unbelief because they actually believed, according to John 7 to verse 41, that nothing good could come out of Galilee. Why? Because well, there's just the people up there are uneducated. They're not in the know as we are down in Jerusalem, the anointed. And they did not like Christ because they liked darkness more than light. John chapter 3 verse 19, it says this. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love darkness more than light. Why? For their deeds are evil. Why did they resist Christ? Because they loved their evil more than they loved the Lord of holiness. Let me ask you a personal question. What are your reasons this Christmas for not embracing Christ? Let's flip it around. What are your reasons for effacing Christ? What should you do with Christ? You should embrace him. Why? He's the eternal God. And I close with my last of two points. Why you should worship him. As eternal God, Jesus is equipped to be the creator. I'll say it again. As the eternal God, Jesus is more than equipped to be the creator. In a non-eternal cosmos, a being greater than creation itself must, by definition, exist. Because nothing is self-caused. Leads to a whole lot of questions for me. I'll just give them to you. Why, where did matter come from? How did it wind up in a Big Bang singularity if there was a Big Bang, which it seems like there was? I mean, how did all that matter end up into a singularity of compressed everything? And where did the vacuum of space come from? Space that's ever-expanding. Uh, how did all the laws which govern our complex cosmos originate from this cosmic explosion? Uh, Alan uh, Sandage, uh, one of the fathers of modern-day astronomy, discoverer of quasars, the winner of the Crawford Prize, an astronomy's equivalent to the Nobel Prize, says this. He says, I find it quite improbable that such order came out of chaos. There has to be some organizing principle. He then says this. God to me, as an astrophysicist, he's a mystery. But is the explanation for the miracle of existence why there is something rather than nothing. That's a highly educated man saying, I see the complexities and there must be an I am who is the causation of all of these things. One who is not caused. That's Christ. Why are all the laws of the cosmos true at all times and all places? I mean, why is the speed of light always 186,000 miles per second? I mean, why isn't it like 50 miles per second? 
Why not? Sean Carroll, uh, cosmologist, writes this. He says, a law of physics is a pattern that nature obeys without exception. Why? Because there's a God who created those laws that are predictable. You couldn't even have science if you didn't have God create, create predictable laws. They can test hypotheses over and determine what is. Because God made the cosmos so they can test it. How did intricate order uh, occur without a designer? Uh, Chandra Rikshranzinga, professor of applied mathematics at the University of Cardiff in Wales, not a Christian, has this to say about the complexity of the cosmos. He says, uh, the statistical probability forming of even a, a single enzyme, the building block of the gene, which is in turn the building block of the cell, is 1 in 10 to the 40,000th power. The mathematician goes on to say the translation of that figure is that it would require more attempts for the formation of one enzyme than there are atoms in all the stars of all the galaxies in the entire known universe. What's the answer to where that complexity came from? One who is I am. One who exists out of time and space. One who is not caused but is always being. Remember Jesus claimed himself to be the I am. Well, that's the ontological, always existent, infinity, infinity person, God. Uh, how did our, our cosmos become so designed? Someone designed it. Charles Town, Nobel, winner of the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1964, a discoverer of the maser, the, that which became before the laser, said this. In my view, the question of the origin seems to be left unanswered if we explore from a scientific uh, point of view. This, this is from a scientist. This I believe there is need for some religious or metaphysical explanation. I believe in the concept of God and his existence. Why? I just look at the evidence. And I look at the complexities of what I study. There has to be a master designer who designs all of these things. Who did Jesus claim to be? The I am who originated all these things. How do I know that? Uh, this is what Jesus said in John chapter 1 verse 3. What did Jesus say about himself? John 1, 3, all things came from where? Into being by him, Jesus. And apart from him, nothing came into being that came into being. I mean, he brought all things. Why? Well, he tells you why he brought things into existence. Why? Where did life come from? In him was what? Life. Spiritual life and physical life. You know, as I've studied science over the years, I love science, as I've studied it, I mean, there's always the big question, how does everything hang together? Like, what's the glue, glue that holds the cosmos together? Uh, well, the scripture's clear. I mean, you could write your whole PhD dissertation on Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul says this. For by Jesus, all things were what? Created. Where? Well, in the heavens and on the earth. What kind of things? Well, things I can see, things I can't see. Visible and invisible. Whether they're thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, these are angelic words for the other realm. Uh, all things have been created by him and for him. He is, notice this, he is what? He's before all things and in him all things do what? He's the glue. He's the glue. See, he's before all things. Why? Because he's the I am. They were debating the I am. Imagine this, the audacity of that unbelief. Before all things means before the law of polarity. Before the law of gravitation and relativity. Before the law of thermodynamics. Before the law of physics. Electromagnetism. Pick one. Photonics. Pick a, any law. Before all those laws. Who was there? God. Christ. The creator. Who spoke it all into existence. Why? He's the essence of life. Why should you embrace Christ? And not efface Christ? Because you're looking at the face of God. And what he do? He left the glory of heaven. To go to an out of the way place called Bethlehem. 
be born not in a really nice Ritz hotel, in a barn, in a trough, most likely made of stone because that's what they are in Israel, stone troughs. The Messiah was born there. What's his mission? Well, to be the Savior. Savior of who? You, me. How did he become your Savior? What'd he say? If you don't believe in me, you die in your sins. What's the positive side? You believe in me, you have life. Why? Jesus said, I am the what? The way, the truth, the life. No man comes to but, but to the Father. Key preposition, but through me. Hopefully this Christmas you'll receive the greatest gift you could ever receive. It's Christ. You get into heaven, into his family forever by faith in who he is, his person and work. Merry Christmas to you. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for who you are uh, and your plan. Uh, so intricate, uh, designed uh, before all existed, the lamb was slain, as Peter see, teaches. Uh, you designed out of love for us to send the Savior to redeem us when we come to you in faith. We pray for those who may not know you, might be searching for you, might it be crystal clear today what they need to do is to open the door of their life to you and say, Lord, I believe, I, have, I still have questions, but I believe in who you are, redeem me. And we who know you, might we shout from the mountaintops, in a loving, compassionate, compelling way to all those that we meet this week around the table with the family and the friends, just the glory of who you are. Amen to that. Merry Christmas to you. Good to see you.